Okay, Mark 12, 30 is our, is our memory verse. Put it on the screen. Ready? Go. Jesus said the most important. Listen, have y'all ever sang Mary had a little lamb in a round? You know, row, row, row your boat. That's what y'all sound like trying to say a memory verse together. Anyway, you, you'll, see, you'll see there's a highlighted part. I highlighted a certain part in it. Um, the part that says, love your neighbor as what? As yourself. Okay, so we spent the first four weeks uh, on, on the first priority, which is God. And I want to put those up there. Uh, part one was God is your only God. Two, God's my source. Above all people, above everything, God is my source. Uh, three was we take God everywhere. We don't take his name in vain. We bring him with us on social media. We bring him with us to work. We bring him with us everywhere we go. And part four is um, that Sunday is for God. And that's in the same list as don't murder, don't steal, and don't kill. So if you think that it's okay to, you know, skip church because, you know, I just have something more fun to do, just remember it's in the same top ten list as not murder, not steal, and, and things like that. And that's the Sabbath. So today's sermon, before I tell you the title, I need you to understand something. This sermon is not for everybody in here, okay? Today's sermon is only for people who put God first. In other words, if God is not your top priority, then when I preach the sermon, when I tell you the title of the sermon, you're going to say, oh, this is my favorite subject of all time. It shouldn't be. God would be your favorite subject of all time, right? And then we get into the second priority, which is today. So today's sermon is for people who are here at church every Sunday. They serve God. They take God everywhere. They try to do so much things for God. That's what today's sermon is for. I want you to be convicted by today's sermon. I don't want you to like it. If you see the title, I'm going to show you the title. If you think, oh, I've been waiting all year to talk about that. If you think that, then this sermon isn't for you, okay? Okay, title of part five, which is our second priority we're getting into, and that is this. Me, myself, and I. <laughs> How many of y'all is this your favorite subject in the world to talk about? So listen, if you don't take care of yourself after God is first, you can't take care of anybody else. If you're always run down, anxious, depressed, uptight, in a bad mood, how are you going to be who God needs you to be at work or at home with your family or taking care of the things that God's put inside of your life? You'll notice I called it me, myself, and I, three parts, because you and I are a three-part being. And, 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 and I'm going to tell you my points. It's body, soul, and spirit. And, and they don't start with the same letter, but it's going to make sense. You have to take care of all three of you. <laughs> you have to say, if you, if you don't take care of your body, but you take care of your soul and your spirit, then you're going to be sick all the time. And, and you're going to be run down. You're not going to have the energy you need. If you take care of your body um, and, and your spirit, but not your soul, you're going to be in a bad mood, and people aren't going to like you, and you're not going to be a good witness. You have to take care of all three of who you are, spirit, soul, and body. You are a vital part of God's plan, vital part. You can't just roam around earth and take up oxygen and think that it's no big deal and you can live how you want to live. You've got to get your priorities in order. Now, here's the goal for this. The goal is for your spirit to be in charge of your body and your soul. Um, the way you do that is spending time with Jesus feeds our spirit. The word of God helps our soul. And, of course, you need to take care of your body. If your body's in charge, if your body's in charge, then you're going to eat 12 Krispy Kreme donuts when the hot sign is on. Right? You don't want your body to be in charge. If your body's in charge, you're just going to sleep in all the time on Sunday mornings and, and just be lazy if your body's in charge. If your soul is in charge, then you are going to base your life on your feelings. And that's what children do. They live by how they feel. If your soul's in charge, which is your mind, your will, and your emotions, then whatever thought you think, you're just going to think it, whether it's right or wrong. You're just going to keep going. If your soul's in charge, you're always going to do what you want to do rather than what God wants to do. 
But if your spirit is in charge of your soul and your body, you will fulfill your destiny and you will walk in the paths that God has for you. Are you with me? So we have to make sure we take care of all three parts. Now, before I get into the sermon today, uh, because we're starting this, this second um, priority, I really needed you to understand how short life is on earth. Because once you really grasp how, how much little time you have, it'll help you put your priorities in order on a regular basis. See, sometimes we live like we're going to be, you know, 500 years old till we die, and we think, I'll get to that later. After I help all the people that call me this week, then I'll take care of myself. You know, after I finally get this project done, then I'll take off on Sundays and not work. And, and, when our, and, we, and we have this concept, we're going to live forever on earth. We're not going to live forever on earth. Our time is limited on earth. And to help you understand that, I was doing some research, and um, if you live to be 85 years old is in, in, in America. This is the average lifespan in America. If you could be 85 years old, um, I have 12 ping pong balls inside this bag that represent an 85-year-old life, 85-year-old life. And if you study and you do research, you'll discover the way our time is spent in America, if you live to be 85 years old, our time is this. Um, sleeping and working is 39 years of your life which is an average of 181 days a year. And that actually represents 12 ping pong balls. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. So that's almost half your life, okay? Continuing to be 85 years old. Um, you'll drive, you'll eat, you'll be in the bathroom, for some of you men that's longer than others, and you'll clean, for some of you ladies that's less than others, 14 years of your life, which is 57 days out of the year, which is four ping pong balls. Now, just so you know, so far, we haven't really, we haven't, we haven't really gotten to any of our really main priorities, and we're already past half of our life. Are you with me? This is kind of depressing. I thought this was going to be encouraging, but now that I'm doing it, it's kind of depressing. Um, you'll play on the internet, on Facebook, or watch TV for 18 years of your life, which is 72 days a year, which is five ping pong balls. <laughs> Your life's filling up pretty quick. I don't, I don't know if you see that or not, okay? Um, you will talk on the phone. You'll look for misplaced objects. You'll wait in line, and you'll complain for 10 years of your life. That's 42 days a year, and that is three ping pong balls. You know what's left? This is what you have left for your top priorities. God... Church, spouse, kids, friends, exercise, your goals, that's four years of your life. That's 13 days a year. That is one ping pong ball. You see, this is why it's really important that when you eat, you eat with your family, you turn your cell phone off. That's why it's really important you turn the TV off and you read your Bible a little bit. It, that's why it's really important you understand what your priorities are. So at the end of your life, you have something to show for how you spent this isn't that amazing? It's not as encouraging as I thought it was going to be now that I'm thinking about it. <laughs> I'm not going to play ping pong anymore, that's for sure. Anyway, so, Song of Solomon 1 6 says this They made me a keeper of vineyards, but what God trusted me, I didn't take care of. I took care, you know, my parents called me three times a week and I took care of them. I always made sure my kids had lunch and I picked them up and I took, they're sick, da da da. I went to work and man, I worked hard and I made money and I climbed the corporate ladder, but you know what I didn't take care of? I didn't take care of myself. I was too busy doing good things, but my priorities were out of order and I didn't do the best thing I was supposed to do. 
Um, I'll give you an analogy, and then I'll, I'll get into my three points. Uh, when I was little, my dad used to travel around the world on speaking engagements, and he, he would take me with him. And um, when I finally was old enough to really understand and listen to the stewardess at the front of the plane when they go through the seatbelt things, I'll never forget, I think we were flying to Connecticut or Vermont or somewhere up north where they need Jesus. And so we were going up there, and, and the stewardess, <coughs> she, um, she said, you know, here's your seatbelt. And, and then she said, in a case of emergency, you'll, an oxygen mask will fall, and you'll take the oxygen mask, and you'll put it on like this. And if you're sitting next to a small child, you'll put the oxygen mask on yourself first, and then put it on your small child. And when she said that, I freaked out. I said, Dad, 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 what's she talking about? No, no, I need you to take care of me. I need you to make sure I get, what, I don't want, you can't take care of, you got to take care of me. Now, my dad should have said, of course, son, I'll put it on you first. I'm a little kid, and if the auction mask comes down, we're probably going to die anyway. That's how bad it is, right? But no, my dad didn't do that. He thought this was a good time to really explain it to me. So he said, son, no, if I put it on you first and something happens to me, there's nobody to take care of me. But if I put it on myself first, then I will be able to take care of you and put the mask on you. And really, and I don't mean this in a selfish way at all, because we are to be selfless people, but if you don't take care of you, you're not going to be good for anybody that God's put inside of your life. You can't effectively minister to your spouse if you don't minister to yourself. You can't minister to your friends if you don't minister to yourself. You're not going to be good for God in church if you don't take care of you. So three points for you today. Number one is this, your body. Your body. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our body is not just the house that God lives in. It is the house that we live in. And you only get one body on planet Earth. Take care of it. Um, my favorite um, prophet in the Bible is Elijah because uh, he's a little bit bipolar like, like I am. And um, I love him so much I actually named one of my kids after him. And so I want to read you some things that God did in Elijah's life in just two chapters of the Bible, okay? I mean, if one of these things happened to me in all the chapters of my life, I'd be happy. This is just two chapters of Elijah's life, okay? 1 Kings 17, 6, the ravens bring Elijah food for three years, supernatural provision. Uh, chapter 17, verse 16, Elijah calls it the oil and flour. Remember the widow woman? It never runs out until it starts to rain again. 1722, he raises a boy from the dead. I'd love to have that on my resume as a pastor. That would be great, right? 1840, he calls down fire from heaven and defeats 450 false prophets of Baal. Amazing! 450 dudes die at fire from heaven. 1845, he prophesies rain after a three-year drought. 1846, he outruns a horse and chariot nearly 20 miles. This is an amazing life. And this is just a little season of his life that God is doing supernatural things. Well, a few days after this, um, Elijah gets a text message from a lady named Jezebel. She was a witch, and I almost said something else. But anyway, so Jezebel, the witch, she, um, she was in charge of those 450 prophets of Baal. They were on her payroll. And she got mad that he called down fire from heaven and destroyed them. So she sends them a text message, and it says this in 1 Kings 19.2. By this time tomorrow, you'll be as dead as those prophets. Watch this. Verse 3. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. He traveled a day's journey to the wilderness, and he sat under a juniper tree, and he asked God, just kill me now. It reminds me of Sanford and Son back in the 70s. Y'all remember the show? Remember every time something shot him, he's like, I'm coming home to you. He'd grab his heart like he's going home to his ex-wife in heaven, you know. Take me now, Lord, take me now. Why would this guy who God has done all these amazing things for, why would he want to quit and turn his back on his priorities? 
Why would he want to say, God, I'm tired of using me. I'm done with ministry. What would make him run away from the great thing God has for him? I mean, first of all, a crazy woman, that would be A, you know. I, somehow I sent some Mother's Day sermon somewhere in this. But anyway, and so um, so he's scared to death this woman and wants God to kill him. Watch this, verse 5. This is amazing. Uh, Elijah slept under that tree and an angel appeared. And the angel said to him, get up and eat. He looked and saw a cake, which by the way, that tells me that angel food cake is something we should eat on a daily basis, <laughs> and some water. So he ate and drank and he laid down again. Listen, when an angel appeared in the Bible, you need to read your Bible. When an angel appeared, it would close the mouth of lions. It would kill 185,000 enemy troops. It would open prison doors. And an angel appeared in a supernatural miracle. Here's what the angel said. You need to get some sleep and eat something. You need to take care of yourself. You know, some of y'all are looking for a miracle today. Here's the miracle. Take a day off. Spend time with your family. Rest. It is okay to rest. Verse 7, watch this. The angel of the Lord appeared again a second time and said, get up and eat. With the strength of that food and rest, he got back to his next assignment. He didn't need a miracle. He needed a day off. He needed to take care of his own temple. He was dehydrated. He was malnourished. He was exhausted. You know, anytime I see all the Bible, anytime people want to run away from their duties, it's not because of bad things happen. It's because they're not taking care of themselves. They're taking care of everybody else. I'm fed up. I'm done. I'm leaving. Why don't you just minister to yourself a little bit the way you minister to everybody else? 2 Samuel 17, 2, referring to David, it says, I'll attack him when he's tired and discouraged. When does the enemy attack us? When we're tired and discouraged. Because he knows here's what's going to happen. He'll panic. His men will run away. And I'll kill David. You know, if an angel appeared to some of y'all today, here's what the angel would say. Thus saith the Lord. Turn your cell phone off at 9 p.m. Thus saith the Lord, stop playing video games till 2 a.m. in the morning. Thus saith the Lord, take a day off. Make yourself some food and just relax a little bit. In Mark 6, 31, so many people needed Jesus. They wanted Jesus' attention, but he didn't have time to eat. So he said this, let's go to a place where we can eat and rest. The Son of God told people, no, I got to take care of myself. Listen, you know, you know he offended somebody. You know he offended somebody. Well, you're Jesus. We need you. We want you. That's right. And I, and I try to teach people, especially in leadership, this. There will always be people that need you. <laughs> There's always going to be somebody that wants your attention. There's always going to be somebody after your time. And if you don't learn how to manage your time, someone else is going to manage it for you. Jesus, he just simply needed to take time for himself. Um, this tells me, too, because with Jesus, with Elijah, with David, there are some people that will drain the life out of you. I mean, they will suck your energy so bad. I mean, it's the equivalent of trying to help 10 people to spend time with this one person. And I know we're trying to be good Christians, and we should, but the Bible says, the Bible says in Proverbs 4, 7, 14, 7, the company of foolish people is a waste of time. You get no return on somebody that doesn't want to change. You get no return on someone that doesn't want Jesus. No return. Give them a little bit of seed and then leave them be. Let them go. In fact, I'm, I'm going to give you a list of people in the Bible, especially in Proverbs, that are referred to as foolish people. Okay, so for your notes, and I didn't put it in your handout, so you may want to write it down. These are people that the Bible says is a waste of your time. Okay, number one is this. Uh, people that have continuous drama. 
They always somehow, drama always finds them. And they say they hate drama, which is funny, but somehow they always find it. We need a drama teacher, by the way, now that I'm thinking about it. I'm just kidding, we don't. Number two is this, people that get easily offended. Uh, number three, negative and opinionated people. Nothing you can do. Um, four, people that ignore authority. In fact, the Bible says that children should not hang out with children who rebel against leaders. And number five, gossips. It's just, it's just a waste. Until they repent and realize, man, the, what I'm doing is not right. I need Jesus to help me. There's nothing you can do. Waste of time. I don't, and if you love them, you won't waste time on them because you're enabling them most likely. So, so let them go, let them go, let them go. And if I don't decide how I'm going to expend energy today, uh, one of these people are going to decide for me. And it's always the person who screams the loudest. It's always the one who blames you for their mistakes. Always the one, if you don't help me, how am I going to get through this? That's the person you got to learn to say no to. They'll take your energy, okay? Point number two, for, are y'all okay so far? Okay, some of y'all are like, I'm glad I brought my friend to church today. Point number two is this, your soul. Your soul. Third John 1, 2, I wish above all things you prosper in every way and that your body is healthy. Now watch this. Even as your soul prospers, your mind, your will, and your emotions, your personality, I think, I want, I feel. So how does our soul prosper? It says in Psalms 19, 7, um, that the law of the Lord restores, converts the soul. And here's what's interesting. <clears throat> it doesn't say John Paul converts his soul. It doesn't say I can change myself fix myself, make myself healthy when it comes to my soul. It says the Word of God does that. That's why, um, you need to understand, you can't change anybody, you can't change yourself, you can't fix anybody, you can't fix yourself, you can only lead them to Jesus and the Word of God. That is the goal, that is the goal. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18, as we continue, in other words, we don't just do it once, as we continue to behold the what? What is it? You should say that with great conviction. We are constantly being transformed, not into what my wife wants me to be, not into who my parents want me to be, not who my boss wants me to be. I'm transformed into the image of God from one degree of glory to another, to another, to another, to another, to another, to another, for this comes from a nagging wife. Is that what it says? Is that what changes a man is a nagging wife? Are you sure? That could be in the message translation. I don't know. Is that what changes us? If we keep hearing from our wives what we're doing wrong, is that what makes us better? It comes from a husband who gives the silent treatment when things aren't right. Is that what changes a woman? When the husband kind of passive aggressively just doesn't talk for two or three days, thinking, oh, she'll know I'm upset and now she'll change things. Is that what fixes us? Does it come from Christians telling us what we're doing wrong? Man, if I point out what they're doing wrong, then they'll change. Is that how we change? It comes from the Spirit. And you are ignorant and prideful if you think that any other change is going to occur in anybody's life other than from God. It starts with God with salvation, it continues with God, and it ends with God. That's why our goal is never to change people or fix them. Our goal is to get them in church so they hear the Word of God. Get them in Bible study so they hear the Word of God. Get them in a circle so they hear the Word of God. That is the goal to me. Now, I thought about how could I really explain this point, so stay with me on the path we're going to go. Um, in Mark 6, 3, when they referred to Jesus, they said about this, isn't he the carpenter? Carpenter, carpenter. That word carpenter comes from an original word, tecton, and it means this, one who builds, and I love this, with any material. Let me say it this way, Jesus will take anybody. He'll take homosexuals, he'll take liars, he'll take lust buckets, he'll take anybody. Now listen, he won't leave them like that, he'll build them. As long as Jesus is the foundation, as long as they're saved, 
and they're willing for God. That's the, the salvation is this. I need you every day. I, I can't change without you. I need that salvation. I need you. I need you. As long as he'll build with any material, you can send him anybody and he'll build. Let me show you some building scriptures. Hebrews 11:3. The worlds were framed by the word of God. That's a general contracting word. Psalms 139:15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. Matthew 16:18. I'll build my church, and the gates of hell won't even prevail. First Peter 2:5. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Here's the point: You are not the builder; you're the building. <clears throat> you are not the builder of your husband; you're a building. You're not even the builder of your children. Their buildings and your buildings, and we all need Jesus to be built. <sighs> Sometimes whenever you, you go by a construction site in Myrtle Beach, you'll see things all out of place. You'll see a, a foundation is usually poured, and then you'll see like holes with PVC pipes coming up. Over here you'll see wires sticking about the ground. There'll be a pile of two-by-fours here. There'll be roof shingles there. There's trash over in the corner. And when you see this, um, nobody ever thinks, I cannot believe this mess. I need to tell all of them to quit. This does not look like what they said would be at this. They said there was going to be a house here. They said there was going to be a, you know, a mall here. There's going to be a pub. This doesn't look like that at all. They need to just stop what they're doing. We never say that because we realize, oh, that's under construction. You need to look at every area of your soul and realize, I'm under construction. I'm always going to be under. Until I see him face to face, I am constantly under construction. Unless you're a family dollar and then you're built the next day. But other than that, we're all under construction, right? We're all under construction. So we have to look at every. Now to the untrained eye, to a negative person, they may think this. Nothing good's going to come out of that. Nothing good. Come, but see, you don't need to worry about that. Because you're not the builder. You're a building. Listen, God is the architect. How can he be the architect? Because he's the one with the plans. You don't even have the plans for the people you love. Let me say it this way. You don't know the areas God's trying to build them in today. You may want them to be built in the area that frustrates you, but God's saying, I got something for you, and I got something for them. My plans for them, my plans for you. You don't, you don't, and see, because we, we, there's things in our lives that, that our spouses are, that they bother us, and we think, we need to fix this, we need to work on this, and God's saying, I have a plan, in five years I'm going to work on that with them, but today I'm working in this area. That's why our goal is always, just tell people you love, you need to spend time with Jesus. You need to go sit down in the car, listen to some Christian music, and you need to pray, because we got something going on in this house, and I can't fix it, I don't know what to say. You need Jesus, I need Jesus. We need to go in our prayer closets a little bit. He, okay, so God's the architect, and listen, and Jesus is the general contractor. And you're just the pile of two-by-fours, the PVC pipe, nails, and the foundation is Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 29, 11, look at this building, watch this. For I know the, what's that word? The plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and give you a future. Every nail, every wire, every tube, it is all part of the plan. Somebody say, I'm under construction. I'm under construction. So when I was like 32, 33 years old, I was, um, I was preaching in the storefront, and this older gentleman who I greatly respect came in, and he was from out of town. It might have been from out of country. And he had traveled all over the world for decades with missionaries and famous preachers and things like that. And he heard me preach for the first time. I was, you know, I've only been preaching for five or six years. And after church, he said, you know, and he was, you know, very wise and very slow with his talking. He said, um... I've heard some of the greatest preachers in the world, and he said, you, you are just 
you're a really good teacher. And then he said, but I bet when you turn 40 years old, you're going to have such an anointing on your life, it's going to shock you. I mean, you could change the world. And when he said that, my head got so big, and I thought, that's right. And when I turn 40 from then on out, I'm never going to sin again. And I had this great plan lined out with God. Okay, for the next eight years, I'm going to work on this and this and this and this. I'm going to change in this area, fix myself over there, read this book to help change that in my life. And when I turn 40 years old, God, that's the day. From then on forward, I'll never sin again, just for you. From 40 years old, I'll never say anything stupid ever again. I'll only say the most wisest, mature things from that day forward. Man, when I turn 40, how holy am I going to be? Well, I'm 43. <laughs> I couldn't go 10 minutes. I couldn't 10 minutes. But I literally, I had a plan. I even wrote the plan. By 33, I'll stop having lustful thoughts. By 34, I'll stop having selfish thoughts. By 35, I'll never say anything. I had it all written out. I couldn't go 10 days. I couldn't go 10 minutes. But it's okay. I'm right where God wants me to be because I'm under construction. And as long as I'm willing to say, keep building me, then my soul is always going to get healthier and healthier and healthier. Stop focusing on the construction site and start focusing on the architect. Now listen, real quick before I get into point three. The people in your life, they're under construction as well. They're under construction as well. I was talking to a, a friend of mine who, um, he's the principal of a Christian school here in the area. He was giving me some wisdom and advice this past week. And um, he said, you know, when it comes to kids in a Christian school, he said a lot of kids, they, they, they're good at hiding their, um, their flesh patterns. They're good at hiding their problems. Really good because you're in a, an environment where, you know, you kind of have higher expectations. So a lot of these kids, they just, they hide their problems. He said, but once we find out what a, a problem a child has, whether they're secretly looking at pornography or they hide cigarettes in their book bag or whatever it is they do, he said, once we find that out, he said, it is so special to us because it gives us the opportunity to disciple them in that area. He said, they'll stay after school and we'll have them write scriptures for 30 minutes about that thing they're going through until they get it inside of them. We'll have them, you know, vacuum a classroom and just serve. We'll put on worship music, leave them in there by themselves. Let them just vacuum and pray and talk to God. When we find out there's a problem, it's a good thing because that's what we're here to do is disciple people to help them grow. Not to kick them aside and push them away. Oh, that building doesn't look right. They're under construction. Philippians 1.6, he that began a good work in you. That he is God, by the way. It's not your parents. It's not your husband. But God who began it will not stop until it's perfectly complete. Point number three for your notes. Spirit. Your spirit. Now, the word of God is for our soul. Spending time with Jesus is what really feeds our spirit. Because it is, it is this Holy Spirit inside of us. Um, your spirit was dead until you got saved. When you got saved, the Holy Spirit came and connected to your spirit. And that's what takes your soul to heaven for your new body whenever you die. But um, there's a test in the Bible that lets you know if you've spent time with Jesus that week properly or not. And you can actually test other people, and it's Galatians 5.22. It is the fruit of, not John Paul, not the pastor, not, it is the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, it is what he produces in our body and our soul when our spirit's strong. He produces it, we don't. So if you've spent time with Jesus, here's what you're producing. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is this, love, joy, peace, patience or long-suffering with people that, you know, that are, that are growing like you are, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, keeping your commitments, humility, I need Jesus, and self-control. Isn't that amazing? Self-control doesn't even come from self. 
Self-control comes from the Holy Spirit. Now see, I know when I haven't spent time with Jesus because I have no self-control. And I lack patience. I am the most, I can't even, you would not even imagine how impatient I am when I haven't spent time with Jesus just for one day. When I miss one day, everything changes. I lack peace. I don't have the joy that I need. And you know what? I can tell when y'all haven't spent time with Jesus either from the same test. These two sisters in Luke chapter 10, they, um, Mary and Martha, they invited Jesus for dinner, and he accepted their invitation. And so they're so excited. Martha is, is, is getting everything ready. I mean, the Son of God's coming to her house. You know, she had to have fresh flowers on the table, you know, vacuum, get everything all nice, you know, make sure the TV was turned to a Christian station so she looks like she's holy. She had it all worked out, right? She had, you know, sweet aroma in the room. She, you know, filet mignon, duck a la orange, you know, lobster, whatever. She had it all fixed. She's getting everything ready, and she looks around for her sister Mary, and she can't find her anywhere. And, and I, I want you to see how manipulative uh, Martha is in the way she talks to Jesus. In Luke 10, 40, Martha was overly occupied and too busy worrying about the what? Which we have not even gotten to that as a priority yet, just so you know. Worrying about the work she had to do. So she said to Jesus, Lord, do you not, this is so manipulative, do you not care that my sister left me alone to serve? She, just, she wanted to use that holy word instead of work. To serve? Tell, you tell her to come and help. She gave Jesus a command. You tell her to come and help me. When you read this, I need you to really understand and visualize that Martha was not doing anything wrong. She was doing something good. She, she wasn't, you know, looking at pornography. She wasn't hating somebody. She didn't have unforgiveness in her heart. She, wasn't, she was doing a good thing. She was preparing food for Jesus. After all, he came over for dinner. It was a good, everybody say good thing. I need you to know that she was doing something good. And Jesus said to her in verse 41, Mar and the Bible never exaggerates over or under. It's always clear. He said it twice. And it wasn't like, Martha, Martha. It was like, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about so many things in life. But girl, your priorities are out of order. You got so much going on. So many things you want to accomplish. So many goals that you've set. But there's only one thing. And he didn't even say there's something. Jesus said there's a top priority here. There's one thing that is necessary. And then I think he said this line just to let her know. Because she was, you know, fussing about her sister. Mary. <laughs> she chose what was best. They both had the same opportunity to do the same thing the same day. They were in the same house, same time. That we, we all have 24 hours in a day. Every one of us have that. Same thing, same time. Martha chose to do something good. Mary chose to do what was best. And I discover in life, the good things will always keep us from the best things. You know, it's good to work really, really hard. It's not good to work on Sundays. It, it, it's good to, you know, to, to have friends and to help people. It's not good to put those people in front of your wife and children. Right? There's priorities in order. What I think is interesting about the story, from the time I first read it, I think I first read it when I was in my 20s, I remember thinking, God, somebody had to cook the food. I mean, he's coming over to eat. He's not coming over to just, you know, to just breathe. He, he was invited to dinner. Someone had to make the food, and God spoke to me so very clearly and said, John Paul, it would be better to have no food 
but spend time with me than to have a five-course meal and your priorities are out of order. Let me say this. It'd be better to live in a one-bedroom apartment and drive a Pinto but get to spend time with your family and not work 60 or 80 hours a week and live in a big house. It'd be better to work at Chick-fil-A for $12 an hour and come to church on Sunday, and I'm just saying it, than make $500,000 a year and you work every Sunday morning. It would be better to put God first, to take care of yourself and minister to your spouse, than to help the 12 other relatives that are live, that always call you every time they're hurting, every time they need something. You gotta do what is best in life. Now, I wanna close with a story. I'll let you go. This lighthouse keeper, he worked off of a very rocky coastline. And every month he was given a certain amount of oil to keep the light burning, to keep the beacon lit. One night, this elderly woman came through and she said to him, uh, it's, a, it's such a very cold night, and if I don't have oil, then our house is going to be, too, my children could freeze to death. We need just a little bit of oil. And the lighthouse keeper, he couldn't bear to see her in that predicament, so he gave her the oil that she needed. A few days later, a man traveling through uh, in the middle of the night, his light had gone out. And he said, I'm trying to get home to my family. Can I just, can you spare just a little bit of oil just for my light so I can see in the night? And once again, the lighthouse keeper gave him the oil that he needed. Still another man a few days later was traveling through. He needed some oil to lubricate his wheel, just a little bit, and the lighthouse keeper gave him what he needed. By the time we got to the end of the month, the lighthouse keeper noticed that his supply was running low, so he sent word out, need more oil, need more oil. Unfortunately, that night, the beacon went out, and three ships had an accident, and hundreds of people died. When the authorities came to investigate the situation, he was very repentant. He said, you don't understand. I actually used the oil for good things. I helped people that were in need. But they rebuked him sharply. They said, you were given oil for one purpose and one purpose only. And that was to keep that light burning. You know, in life, God gives you a certain amount of energy every day. He gives you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You have a certain amount of physical energy, certain amount of emotional energy, certain amount of mental energy. But if your priorities are out of order, you will never get to the main things God's called you to do. I just, I pray so hard that you put God first, that you minister to yourself, and that your marriage and your children come before anything else on planet Earth. Or you'll get to the end of your life and realize you wasted that one ping pong ball that God gave you. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's go to the